0: Hello, and welcome to our 7 part video series, The Ultimate Guide to Successful Property Investing. My name is Stephen Vick, and I'm confident that if you're an Australian resident, these will be the most comprehensive and valuable investment videos that you'll find on the internet. Whether you're a first time investor, or you have a large portfolio of properties, I'm positive you'll learn something new from this series of videos. Understanding the pros and cons associated with each strategy and being clear about what your strategy is. A deep dive into calculating the true holding costs of your properties. We'll also discuss the type of properties that deliver high yield, where to find them, and under what circumstances they fit into your portfolio. We'll look at some research regarding what drives capital growth and how to find the optimal mix between growth and yield. How to identify and protect against market risk, project risk, and personal risk. The 15 common mistakes made by most property investors, even the very experienced. The compromise you must make in choosing property that's right for your portfolio. Other considerations such as ownership structures, debt planning, cash flow modelling and how everything fits together. So why did we put this video series together? I know it will be asked of me why we're sharing so much knowledge for everyone to access online for free. Well, it's because the majority of Australians still view their property as their primary investment vehicle, but only 2.5% of all Australians own more than two investment properties. And that's mainly due to the lack of quality education in this area. Traditionally, property advice has been provided by three different types of professionals, being either real estate agents who aren't qualified to give investment advice and are usually just restricted to a handful of suburbs or financial planners, of which about 80% are licensed by the banks or institutions and will do their utmost to talk you out of direct property investment and into shares. Or the property marketing groups, who usually work directly for the developers and are simply trying to sell their own stock. With investment property still not being classified as a financial product under Australian law, consumers don't enjoy the same level of protection that's afforded to those purchasing shares or bonds. Consequently, most people go it alone, not knowing who to trust, and end up making unnecessary mistakes. At Nexus, we're passionate about sharing quality education so that all Australians can benefit from good property investment. I encourage you to take the time to watch these videos, and if nothing else, just have a bit more insight into the art and science of building a property portfolio. Most people think property investing is pretty easy. They think it's all about finding the best looking property they can find within their budget because if they love it, then others will love it too. Nothing could be further from the truth. Quantifying property investments is an incredibly complicated business, and like all investments should be purely about the mathematical outcomes. The very same property could have a vastly different mathematical outcome for you than it does for someone else. Let's first talk about the various types of property investment strategies out there. And whilst there's literally dozens of strategies that you'll see on the internet, they all broadly fit into just four different categories, being the flipper, the developer, the yield chaser, and the growth seeker. The flipper has a short-term investment view and is trying to buy a property that's undervalued or distressed looking to add a bit of value by renovating or decorating, then reselling to realise a quick profit. This is probably the most fun of all the strategies, particularly if you're a renovation show enthusiast. There are some people who have done very well out of this strategy, and some who even make a living out of it. But there's a number of hurdles the flipper needs to overcome in order to profit from his investment. Firstly, the cost of buying and selling a residential property in our capital cities is roughly about $50,000 once you've covered all the entry and exit costs. You'll then have to recover the renovation costs and holding costs. you also have to allow for the cost of your personal time and the opportunity cost of having all your equity tied up for the duration of the project. If you achieve this you'll then hit with full capital gains tax at your marginal tax rate if you can realise a profit within the first 12 months. If you sell the property after 12 months, you will be entitled to the 50% capital gains tax exemption unless you're deemed to be running a renovation business by the ATO. Doing all this and still making a profit is by no means impossible, but the upside needs to be a reflection of the risks taken on such a project. The main risks involved with flipping as a strategy are underestimating material and labour costs, obtaining council approvals, unforeseen structural defects, time frame blowouts and the holding costs, and short-term negativity in property markets. All of these things can quickly eat up profits or cause substantial losses to the uninitiated. In my experience, when it comes to flipping properties, most profits are made in a rising property market where you would have made a good profit from a buy and hold strategy anyway, and not due to the flipper's superior design skills. Don't get me wrong, you can do well out of property flipping, But like anything, it's not until you gain experience and become really good at it before you can add genuine value. It's my opinion that this strategy should be reserved for the passionate few who can persist beyond the first few failures to eventually make a career out of it. As you'll see in module three of this series, it's likely that you'll make more money by paying full price for good properties than you will by underpaying for inferior properties. For more detail on this subject, you can download the Ultimate Guide to Property Investment ebook by clicking on the link below. The developer is a bit like the flipper on steroids, but likes to build things from scratch. Property development can take on a few forms from splitting residential blocks to building apartment complexes or developing larger scale land estates or even using property options to secure future opportunities. With all property development for every success story, there's also a horror story. Profits can be quite large, but developers need to deal with so many unexpected factors. Here's a few things that can go wrong. The weather, increases in labor costs and cost of materials, approval delays, disputes, hostile neighbors, changes in legislation, the solvency of builders and tradies, and even the interpretation of contract law. These things can all test the patience of experienced developers, and even the best developers are not immune to these contingencies. Suffice to say that some of the biggest and most successful property developers in Australia have gone bankrupt at least once, so it's certainly not for the faint-hearted. Property development can be a steep learning curve and requires deep pockets. For a detailed analysis of property development as a strategy, please refer to the full version of the Ultimate Guide to Property Investment ebook. Firstly, it's important to distinguish gross yield from net yield. The gross yield on a property is simply the rental return only, measured as a percentage of the value of the property. The net yield is the rental return less the ongoing expenses plus the tax addbacks as a percentage of the property value. This of course will change for investors with different financial circumstances and for different property types. Examples of properties with high gross yields are commercial, industrial, and retail purpose buildings, service departments, hostels, and student accommodation. Retirees are one example of the type of investors we usually see seeking yield, as they often simply seeking a regular income stream and have no intention of ever selling the asset. Yield is also important though for those relying on rent to help meet the holding cost of the property, particularly when there's borrowing involved. The trick for most still accumulating wealth is to generate just enough yield to be able to hold on to just not just one property but a number of properties while still focusing on long-term growth. This requires accurate cash flow modeling to explore a number of what if scenarios. We'll cover this more in detail in part 2 of this series. Every property exists somewhere on the spectrum of high growth and low yield or low growth and high yield. It's a bit of a trade off. For example, as mentioned, commercial and industrial properties historically have a very high yield, but their growth is usually quite low. This is because their growth is a fair reflection of business and more closely follows the Consumer Price Index or CPI. Whereas luxury property, let's say that penthouse overlooking the water, tends to have much higher growth rates with much lower yields. Your standard residential property sits somewhere in the middle and has an advantage over many other asset classes because of an enormous pool of potential renters and buyers. Growth seekers are usually balancing the limited resources of both their equity and their cash flow in order to accumulate and hold as many growth assets for as long as possible. In Australia, growth seekers are awarded the most by the tax office with income tax offsets that subsidise lower yields and capital gains tax concessions that reward the long-term investor. Most Australians that haven't yet retired and are still growing their wealth tend to be growth seekers. We'll delve deeper into exactly what growth investors are looking for in part three. If you love the idea of replacing your current career with that of being a professional renovator or flipper, then go for it. I would never discourage anyone from following their dreams. And honestly, there are better people placed than I am to give advice in this area. I will say though, don't go into it with rose-coloured glasses. The reality TV shows are not reality. These amateurs featured on these shows are supported by large casts of professionals. From talking with investors over the last 25 years, I can say that most flippers find it very difficult to make any real gains from the first few projects they take on. As far as developers go, Well, this is often the most profitable strategy in the short term, if you get it right. And if you're lucky enough to have friends or family that are prepared to teach you everything they know, or assist you with capital funding, then you'll definitely have a head start here. However, this strategy also carries the most amount of risk. Again, if you want to devote your life and career to it, you can be rewarded handsomely for your efforts. Otherwise, if it were that easy, everyone would be doing it. Property developing is not easy, and as in life, the high rewards require high amounts of stress and dedication. In the next two parts of this series, we'll be focusing on how to calculate net yield and how to quantify your growth decisions. This will include how to interpret property data and statistics. The best way to explain how to calculate the true holding costs on a property is to show you an example. Actually I'm going to show you two examples. The first being a brand new apartment and the second being an older established house. Both are around the same price and in the same suburb. The following cash flow table is from a brand new 3 bedroom, 2 bathroom, 2 car garage off the plan unit in Newmarket, a good inner suburb of Brisbane and is on the market for $650,000. Firstly, it's important to get a couple of rental appraisals from local real estate agents and use the lowest one for your gross rental income figure. Then deduct the vacancy rate for the type of dwelling in that area. I usually double the vacancy rate to be conservative, so in my example I've used 2 weeks per annum for the unit and 4 weeks for the house. You then deduct the interest expense. Again, it's prudent to err on the higher side when using loan interest rates, And if I was doing this as a part of a broader financial plan, I'd usually run a scenario assuming an interest rate increase of about 2%, just to see what effect this has on the client's total cash flow and asset position. But I'll just use 5% for this example. You then deduct the annual expenses. Be sure to include things like council rates and services, landlord's insurance, body corporate fees, letting fees, accounting fees, etc. I've listed property maintenance on a separate line because I wanted to make the point that this should really be averaged over a 10-year period. In this example, because it's a brand new apartment, there shouldn't be any serious maintenance or structural issues, as new buildings in Queensland have a a 6.5-year statutory builder's warranty. So I've just assumed $500 per annum for maintenance on the apartment. We then deduct our property management fee, which is usually around 7 or 8%. So those are the actual expenses that you'll incur. However, from a tax perspective, the ATO allows you to claim depreciation on the fixtures and fittings over the first few years of the property's life and the depreciation on the value of the building over a 40-year period. If the property's over 40 years old, no depreciation can be claimed. This is a tax deduction that investors are incentivized with. However, it's not an actual out-of-pocket expense. It can therefore have a large positive effect on the true holding cost of your property. The full amount of depreciation in the first year for this unit is an estimated $21,064. A quantity surveyors report will firm up this number. This gives us a total expenses claimable, which we multiply by our marginal tax rate to give us our tax refund. To calculate our actual holding costs, we simply take our income less our total expenses and add back our tax refund. In this case, I have a positive cash flow of $4,787 per annum or $92 per week in the first year. This amount should generally grow over time as your mortgage will stay the same but rent should go up. This is a classic case of how you can be negatively geared but still have a positive cash flow, even after borrowing 100% of the cost of the property. Now let's look at the established house. The following table is the cash flow analysis from this 3 bedroom, 2 bathroom, 2 car garage established house on 577 square metres of land, also a new market, with an asking price of $689,000. The estimated rent on this house is $550 per week and as I said will allow 4 weeks vacancy on the house. Loan interest is slightly higher because the house is more expensive than the unit but the annual expenses will be lower because, despite the house having higher rates and insurance costs, there are no body corporate fees to pay on the house. When it comes to the ongoing maintenance of houses, there's usually more things to consider when compared to the upkeep of apartments. Maintenance items on older houses can include things like gardening, painting, upgrading of roofing and gutters, replacing rotted timber work, pest and termite control, general attrition of appliances. Plumbing, electrical, and possibly even the updating of kitchens, bathrooms, and floor coverings. I'd also suggest getting a building and pest inspection done before purchase to ensure there are no costly structural issues that you may be unaware of. It's these things that can often force the investor to have to sell before he's had time to realize a capital gain if he's not allowed for them in the cash flow modeling. I've made a realistic guess for these costs and averaged them over a 10 year period, giving me $8,000 per annum. The property management fees will be a little bit less because of the lower rent, but the really big difference between the old house and the new apartment is the depreciation claimable. Because this house is close to 40 years old, I can't claim any depreciation. Once I subtract my total expenses from my income and add back my tax refund, you can see that my true holding cost for this house is $12,335 per annum or $237 per week. Now if we compare the holding costs of the apartment to the holding costs of the house, the difference between the two is $329 per week or $17,108 per annum. I'm sure you'll agree that this is a significant difference in the cost of holding on to just one investment property. Now with my example, when I assumed annual maintenance expenses of $8,000, I assumed that all of those expenses were fully deductible in the current year. However, only general expense items and repairs can be claimed in fall each year. Significant expense items such as carpets, kitchens or structural improvements are considered as capital in nature and can't be claimed in the year of the expense. It only gets taken into account within the capital gains tax calculations when you eventually sell the property. This can sometimes cause a bit of an unexpected shock to your annual cash flow. The purpose of these two examples is not to advocate one property type over another. They all have their place. It's simply to highlight variances in yield calculations and how important it is to not just rely on a back of the envelope, rent covers mortgage type calculation. There can be huge differences in holding costs between two properties that have the same price and fetch the same rent. Getting net yield calculations wrong can have a big effect on your lifestyle or even result in you having to sell a property prematurely and losing money on the whole investment. So that's how you calculate the true holding costs of an investment property held in your personal name. Other factors that may have an effect on the tax outcomes and therefore the cash flow are debt structuring and ownership structuring. Refer to our ebook for more information on these topics. In the next segment, we'll look at how growth affects total investment returns and what drives capital growth. Before we get into what drives growth, I think it's important to see what effect capital growth has on your overall investment returns. The following table shows the effect of a range of compound growth rates on a $500,000 investment over 10, 20 and 30 years. For the sake of this exercise, I'll focus on the 20 year column. Depending on your age and your personal circumstances of course, I'd consider 20 years a good buy and hold timeframe for investment property. If over the next 20 years your investment achieved only 1% growth, then ignoring the buy and sell costs and the net yield, you'd make a net profit of $110,000. If you're lucky enough to achieve 10% growth, then you'd make a net profit of well over $2.8 million. These are extreme examples of course, but there's many suburbs around Australia that have had double digit growth rates over the last 20 years. However, the average growth rate of every suburb across Australia over the last 20 years is estimated to be around 5% per annum. Now, you'll see that if over the next 20 years your investment property achieves just 1% under the national average and your brother in law achieves just 1% above average, then he would earn over half a million dollars more net profit than you would. A bit of pill to swallow at family barbecues but that's the difference between 4% and 6% growth over 20 years. So you can see that even small differences in growth rates mean huge differences in profit when measured over the long term. Now that we know what sort of impact capital growth can have on our investments, let's look at what drives capital growth. We've all heard the catch-cry, location-location. And location certainly is a large part, but not the only part of what drives capital growth. But what does this mean, and what is it about location that's important? Before I answer that, I'd like to share some research with you. The following diagrams show growth rates in a number of suburbs within Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane over the last 10 years, to the end of 2016. As with all data analysis, there'll always be outliers, however, generally you can see a high correlation between suburbs being closer into the CBD and having higher growth rates there is definitely a pattern here. And this makes sense as each one kilometer ring that you go out of the city, there's an exponential amount of supply or future supply opportunities available. On the demand side of the equation, it turns out that employment is one of the main growth drivers, as most of us don't like to spend hours every day getting to work, and a good proportion of our jobs are in the CBD. Other demand side growth drivers include access to transport nodes, hospitals, schools, universities, restaurants, and entertainment or lifestyle amenity. All property investments need both an increase in demand and some sort of constraint on supply for them to actually increase in value. Most city fringes have an abundance of land available, which tends to keep prices comparatively low in those areas. The Reserve Bank of Australia have recently stated in a white paper on housing prices that the premium paid or the gap between prices of inner suburbs and outer suburbs, is expected to grow exponentially over the next 20 years, mainly due to the baby boomers, who are no longer able to maintain their house on the quarter acre block and are downsizing to apartment living. These baby boomers also want access to essential services such as hospitals, entertainment and lifestyle amenity. As part of the July 2017 budget reforms, retirees are now also receiving tax incentives to downsize. This is just one example of demographic shifts that will have an impact on the demand for inner city living. Immigration and migration rates, the millennials, and the cost of housing will also have an impact. Download the Ultimate Guide to Property Investment eBook for more examples of demographic trends in Australia. Now there's other smaller cities and regional areas that appear to have similar growth drivers, but historically haven't performed well over the long term. This is usually because they're heavily reliant on one or two specific industries to drive demand, such as mining, tourism, defense, etc., and tend to exhibit boom and bust type characteristics. They may perform well over short periods of time, but don't have all the growth drivers to achieve good consistent long-term returns, like our capital cities do. All of these things are no surprise to international investors, but Australia has had a bit of a love affair with land for generations. Okay, so we know that the major capital cities tend to be more consistent in their growth rates and enjoy higher growth closer to the city without actually being in the city. But that's not the end of it. We have to look at other factors that have positive or negative effects on the suburb or on the actual property, such as infrastructure plans or rezoning and we'll discuss this in more detail in the next module. A growth factor that is not a consequence of location is the property's point of difference, or buyer appeal. When we go to sell the property and realize our profit, we want to appeal to the owner-occupier because they make up about 70% of all buyers in the marketplace. So standard of finishes, views or aspect, floor plans, and other design features all contribute to the owner-occupier pay more for your property than the one down the road. But let's not forget about the buyer who's an investor, because we'd like to appeal to her also, so that we attract 100% of the marketplace to get the best price for our property. Investors are going to be very interested in the certainty of the asset's ability to generate income into the future. So yes, yield is an important part of a property's growth prospects. And this makes sense, as every investment's capital value is intrinsically linked to its ability to earn future income. The more certain the income, the higher the capital that will be risked to attain it. So in summary, if it's growth you're seeking, there may be some pockets that defy historical trends and have short-term spurts of high growth. However, if you're a long-term investor and just want to play it safe, you may want to stay close to the CBDs of the major capital cities in what we call the blue-chip suburbs, especially if you're trying to build a portfolio of multiple properties. Trying to pick the next hot spot is almost impossible, and even if you get it right, over the long term, the suburb may not perform up to par. One bad decision in this area can impede your overall portfolio growth for many years. There are, of course, lots of risks involved with buying property, and some of them are very obvious. But I'm going to start this segment with one that's not so obvious, that being timing risk. If you have a huge pile of cash lying around, and you don't need to borrow to invest, then at times that property and shares are performing badly, you're probably able to get a solid return on your money in cash-based investments like bonds or debentures. However, when markets turn, they turn quickly, and trying to chase the various asset class sectors year on year can be like chasing your tail. My advice to cashed-up investors is to get the right balance of asset allocation across multiple asset classes. Be patient and play the long game. However, if you're borrowing the majority of funds to acquire property, then the risk of being in the market in the short term is going to be limited to the amount of negative cash flow your strategy demands. If a $500,000 investment is only going to cost you $2,000 per annum to hold on to, then I would suggest that the risk of getting the timing wrong would certainly outweigh the costs of being in the market. Therefore, as a long-term investor who is borrowing to invest, the answer to the question of when to invest should always be now. Those who try to time the markets are taking a large and unnecessary risk. Is the property affected by flooding or water runoff? Check the local council flood plan. What's the zoning in the area, and are there any large-scale residential projects planned to go up nearby? This competition may have an effect on your rental returns. Are there any infrastructure projects that may affect the livability of the property? This could affect vacancy rates and should be allowed for in the cash flows. If it's a new build, does the vendor have development approval? Often we see property developers selling projects before they have a DA, and frequently end up having to change the price or the floor plan, because council imposed some unforeseen requirement on them. If buying off the plan, does the developer require funding to complete the project? And if so, has he met all the lender's conditions, such as pre-sales, etc.? If funding's not yet secured by the developer, the project build time could go on for years. If the property is relatively new, it's likely that significant structural defects are covered by a a 6.5 year statutory warranty scheme and non-structural defects will be covered for a period of up to about 12 months. These timeframes differ from state to state, however, regardless of how old the property is, I'd recommend having a building inspection completed before purchase. From July 1, 2017, depreciation on fixtures and fittings can't be claimed as a tax offset if the property has been owned by anyone other than the builder developer. It's important to know if the developer has transferred the property into a family member's name or into another entity such as a family trust before selling it to you. In addition to insuring against fire, flood, disaster, etc., you should also make sure that you obtain landlord's insurance to protect against tenant misadventure. Another not so obvious risk is inflation or opportunity risk the risk of not being invested for one reason or another. Some people wait years, even decades, to pay down their mortgage before getting serious about investing and sacrifice years of growth because they thought they weren't in a position to get into the market, when professional advice may have suggested otherwise. If you're not sure if you're in a position to invest, talk to a mortgage broker or private wealth manager, and don't just rely on what your bank manager says. If you're not invested, then it's likely that inflation is eating away at the value of your savings. As with everything, there's some risks that you can accept or self-insure, some that you can pass on or outsource, Some that you can get insurance for, and some that you should just avoid altogether. It's a cost-benefit trade-off. And identifying the risks that relate to your property acquisition through a due diligence process will help you minimise your financial exposure. 73% of all Australian property investors have only one investment property in their portfolio. That's quite surprising, isn't it? and 91% of all property investors have two or less properties in their portfolio. This suggests that less than 10% of Australians are competent property investors, and this is why I'm passionate about education and regulation in this area. Often people fail because they've made one or more of the following mistakes. These are the most common and significant mistakes that I see in property investing. As mentioned in Module 2, the net yield or the true holding cost of a property is not that easy to calculate, and many people underestimate the ongoing costs of holding property, particularly older property. Not doing various scenario costings or movements in interest rates, vacancy rates, changes in personal expenditure, and not allowing for buffers are very common mistakes for inexperienced investors. Mm Often clients ask me about booming city fringe areas. These areas exhibit a lot of the growth attributes that i mentioned in module 3. There's undeniably huge population growth and infrastructure spending in these areas, which are important demand side growth attributes. However, as far as tightening of supply goes, well there's usually enough land in these areas to keep them going for the next 50 years or so. You need both increasing demand and restricted supply for anything to go up in value. Often people confine their property research to the few suburbs around where they live, or their favourite suburbs. As seen in module 3, if you sacrifice just 2% of growth because you've ignored superior suburbs. Then on a $500,000 property over 20 years, you could be sacrificing over half a million dollars of net profit. There's an entire nation of opportunity out there. Don't limit your investment options. You can spend your weekends going to every auction and every open house, reading every estate magazine, trawling through the internet and negotiating your hardest. And if you're successful, you may be lucky enough to buy something tens of thousands of dollars under the genuine market value. But again, if you have sacrificed just 1% of growth to achieve this, then you're denying yourself of hundreds of thousands of dollars of profit over the long term. If you're following a buy and hold strategy, you're better paying fair value for an investment with great growth attributes than you are paying a discounted rate for an inferior asset. If you've ever had thoughts of buying an investment property near the beach because you'd like to stay there a couple of times a year and perhaps even retire there in the future you're not alone many people try to combine lifestyle choices with investment choices but at the times you would be likely to stay at the beach you are probably also the peak earning times for your investment property holiday rentals also have high maintenance costs due to the large number of tenants and will often require a bit of a revamp every few years It's likely that staying at the Marriott or the Airbnb will be a lot less costly in the long run. And when you eventually retire, you'll probably want something a bit bigger or better or less lived in anyway. Buying expensive real estate for status or boasting rights is another example of a fringe benefit. If you simply view your investment property as boring money-making boxes and don't make your decisions based on personal reasons, then over time, you'll accumulate enough wealth to Go and buy any beach house or penthouse that your heart desires. If there's a fringe benefit associated with any investment, you can be assured it's taking away from the overall returns. It's best to keep lifestyle decisions and investment decisions completely separate. A property may sell for more than what you think it's worth, and it may rent for more than what you would pay. And that's because there's obviously a market for it. And property markets are quite sophisticated and fairly accurate. It may not be the type of property that you would want to live in, but you don't have to live in it. On the flip side, don't think you see some charm or potential that the market doesn't see. This charm is already priced in. Investment decisions should be made purely based on the numbers, and not on your personal biases towards property. It's important to acknowledge that 95% of all statistics are incorrect. Okay, I'm joking of course, but you get my point. Statistics are often misused and it's important to look behind the numbers to see who's quoting them. Some numbers can seem quite impressive at times, but pale in comparison when held up to just average compounding investment returns. When it comes to metrics used in measuring property performance, you'll often hear the words median growth rates, used as a measure of price increases. Now there's a couple of things that you should know about this metric. Firstly, the word median refers to the middle, not the average. For example, if if only five properties were sold in a single year, then their median value would be the price of the third property, and not necessarily the average price. This can distort real returns where there's only a small amount of data available. The big issue with how median values are used is that they only refer to properties sold within a particular time frame, usually annually. Let me give you a couple of examples how this may give a false impression of genuine growth. When new satellite suburbs pop up on the city fringes, the first home buyers may start building small, low-set, low-cost dwellings. And as time passes and more homes are built, shops, amenities, and other infrastructure is invested to take advantage of the growing population. Consumers and speculative builders become progressively more confident in the suburb and begin spending more on new homes. Before long you'll see two-storey houses and the occasional mansions pop up. Because people are now spending more on new homes in the area, and the fact that median values are measured at a point in time, means that the medians are much higher in the later years of the suburb's development. This translates into large upward trends in median growth rates. However, it doesn't mean that those who bought cheaper homes in the years before are now getting any more for their properties. It just means that the market is now spending more on newer, bigger homes in the area. Another example is when, say, a large-scale luxury apartment block goes up in an expensive suburb with, say, uh, spectacular views and million-dollar penthouses in it. And in the following years, they mainly build one- or two-bedroom apartment complexes in, say, secondary locations within the same suburb. This of course will show a large drop in apartment median growth rates for that suburb in the years following the prestige development. Given the small number of apartments and townhouses sold in any one suburb in a given year, median growth rates are poor indicators of real price growth for these dwellings. Median values are only one tool used in assessing property performance and shouldn't be used in isolation. Just to take our example of median growth rates a bit further, it's important to make sure you're comparing apples with apples. You'll often see median growth rates quoted for apartments and townhouses maybe one or two percentage points lower than that of houses in the same suburb, when assessed over long periods of time. But quite often, the average house price in any given suburb will be twice the price of an apartment in the same suburb. If we were to spend the same amount on an apartment as we were a house in the same suburb, we would no doubt be able to purchase a luxury apartment. And luxury property usually achieves the highest growth rates of all residential properties. Conversely, if we were to only spend on a house, what the average apartment costs in that suburb, well, it would probably f- be falling down, wouldn't it? It would also have very high expenses. So clearly comparing apartment growth and house growth in the same suburb is not comparing apples with apples, particularly in the inner suburbs where average house prices are very high. I think it's fairly well accepted now that there's no real news. All media is rewarded for the amount of views or clicks they receive. And it's also well researched that fear and bad news attract far more attention than that of good news. I haven't got much to say on this topic except that As an investor, if you listen to market commentary, you would either be buying and selling every day and destroying your wealth, or you would never invest at all. A long-term buy and hold strategy usually yields the best results, but it does take a lot of nerve to stay calm when it seems as though everyone is telling you you're doing the wrong thing. We discussed strategy in the first module, and I hope what you got out of it was that everyone is different. We all have different incomes, liquidity requirements, risk profiles, goals, timeframes, frames, et etc. So it's impossible for someone to tell you what's right for you unless they've conducted a thorough analysis of your circumstances and are qualified and experienced in these matters. Friends and family may be well-meaning, but it's unfair for them to overlay their experiences, good or bad, onto you. If you've ever sat through a property seminar in the 90s, you've probably heard that the only component of property to rise in value is the land content, and that the building itself only depreciates in value. This sounds logical, but is an oversimplification usually used by those selling house and land packages out on the outskirts of town. The truth is, of course, that it's not the land or the building, it's simply the location or the opportunity to live somewhere desirable. If it were only the size of the land that dictated prices, then you wouldn't have tiny one-bedroom apartments in the middle of London selling for over $5 million. Supply and demand are the key determinants of price movements. If you were going to purchase only one investment property in your whole life, based on the tax treatment alone, it's more than likely that it should be bought within your superannuation. This depends on a lot of things, of course, but I'm simply making the point that using self-managed super funds or discretionary trusts or holding title jointly rather than individually can make a huge difference to the long term mathematical outcomes. I could talk for hours on this topic and it's where we see most of the bigger mistakes made. You can watch our video on debt management by clicking on the link below for more information on this. I see lots of families that are ready to upgrade into a new home, turning their old home into an investment property. They believe that this kills two birds with one stone, upgrading and investing. Sometimes the emotional connection with the original home factors into the decisions as well, and this can be really costly. Usually by the time they come to this, the old property has a low amount of debt attached to it, and they end up borrowing high amounts to fund the new home. In this case, the total debt is mostly bad debt that being against their new home, and the good debt, the now tax-deductible debt on their old home, is comparatively low. This is the opposite of what it should be. In addition, the old home will have very little, if any, depreciation left to claim, and being an older home will more than likely have high maintenance costs. It's also likely that it's not of an investment grade or in a blue-chip suburb. It's often better just to sell the old home, pay down the loan on the new home using the proceeds, then redraw equity to buy a new investment property with high debt, high depreciation, low maintenance costs, and in a high growth area. The emotional connection you have with your first home may end up costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars. A structured risk management plan may utilize tools such as buffers, insurances, investment trusts, SMSFs, wills, or even testamentary trusts. All of these things have inherent costs of course, but a well-structured risk management plan is essential and should be viewed as just the cost of doing business when you're a professional investor. We all experience challenges in our lives, and without a contingency plan, your investment portfolio can just crumble like a house of cards. So there are my 15 most common mistakes made by investors when building a property portfolio. These are the things that contribute to the majority of Australians not becoming successful property investors or self-funded retirees. If you're buying property with a long-term view, then there are many things to consider. But before you start your search, it's important to narrow down the field a bit to be sure of the type of property that's going to best suit your strategy. Of course, there's no such thing as a perfect property, and invariably there's a trade-off of traits that we all have to go through when selecting what's right for us. The following decision matrix will help you choose the type of property that is most suited to your portfolio. The first trait we'll look at is the price. For most people, the budget's fairly fixed and is usually dictated by how much the banks will lend, what the asset allocation or diversification plan is, and what the investment objectives are. This may not be the case for the cashed-up yield seeker though. It's pretty well accepted in the property industry that location accounts for about 80% of the price growth. So this may not be something that you want to compromise on very much if you're a growth seeker, but won't be as much of a consideration to the yield chaser. The next area is affordability. As per module 2, whether you're a yield chaser or growth seeker, you need to ensure you calculate your net yield correctly after allowing for all expenses and tax effects. Some investors, even on high incomes, will not want owning investment property to change their lifestyle, while others won't mind large negative cash flow. Remember, yield and growth are often trade-offs in themselves. Which brings us to property type. Traditionally, commercial properties have very high yield, but their growth more closely follows the consumer price index, which is quite low compared to residential property. This makes sense as it's more reflective of business than residential housing markets. Commercial, industrial and retail investors also need to allow for the possibility of expensive fit out costs and long vacancy periods. These properties can be quite capital intensive and are often more suited to the yield chaser who has plenty of cash and no intention to ever sell. Service departments, student accommodation and holiday homes also have high gross yields and lower growth rates, but the maintenance costs are the things to watch out for here. Over the long term, these properties will no doubt need some serious TLC. Residential property, on the other hand, usually has a more balanced yield and growth trade-off, with less need for large capital expenditure. The choices in the residential market are generally luxury homes, house and land, townhouses or apartments. Choosing between these property types is where the trade-off gets real for most growth seekers. For instance, luxury homes tend to have the highest growth rates out of all of these. However their yield is usually quite low. So unless you have a large budget to start with, and are happy to fund the negative cash flow, they may be out of reach. For as long as I can remember, there has been a belief that houses provide better returns than units. However, data provided by CoreLogic on total returns for houses versus units from July 2010 show that whilst they perform differently at different times, over the long term there's very little between them. So why such strong sentiment against units across the general population? Well, you have to ask yourself, who benefits from talking down the price of units or townhouses? You guessed it, everyone who owns a house. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. This depends on your circumstances. What I am saying is don't discard units because of some urban myth. Astute investors have understood this forever. So when choosing what type of property, you may say to yourself that, The perfect investment for a growth investor may be a luxury home that's brand new because of the tax deductions and the low maintenance with a unique point of difference and very close to the city. But your compromise here will be low yield and of course it may be way out of your price range. You may not want to compromise on location either as this is responsible for most of the growth. So if you don't want to compromise on your property type, you may have to be prepared to subsidize the holding costs. As a growth investor with limited surplus income, I would much prefer to hold a unit or townhouse close to the city than a house and land further out. In part one, we talked about the various property investment strategies, categorizing them into four groups, being the flipper, the developer, the yield chaser, and the growth seeker. In a nutshell, the strategy that's right for you will depend on your age, your financial position, your appetite for risk, and the personal time you're prepared to devote. This further divides the strategies in being relevant for, I guess, either speculators or investors. With investing being the focus of this video series, we then switched our attention to the things that are important to both yield chasers and growth seekers. In part two, we showed how to calculate yield and highlighted some of the longer term capital expenses to allow for when calculating total return on investment. We also drew a comparison between a yield strategy and the growth strategy, with the observation being that if you can hold on to your investments for at least one market cycle, usually about seven to 10 years, then focusing on growth will provide a better total return than focusing on high yielding properties. In part three, we acknowledge that location is responsible for the majority of growth in property, and we discussed some of the important facets of location, being employment, transport, schools, hospitals, and lifestyle amenity. We also looked at other growth drivers, like point of difference and certainty of future income. We then asserted that forgoing even small percentage points in growth to achieve other goals, such as staying in areas that you're familiar with or buying distressed property, can have a significant negative effect on your long-term returns. Growth is essential when borrowing is involved and is the primary objective of most wealth accumulators. In part four, we discuss how to assess the risks. Of course, not all risks should be avoided altogether, but it's important to understand the risks before taking them on. A good risk management plan should assess all risks associated with your property purchases and decide what risks to accept, what risks to avoid completely, what risks to outsource to a third party, and what risks to insure against. In addition to building and landlord's insurance, it's important for every investor to do an assessment of their own personal insurances, including life, total and permanent disability, income protection and trauma insurance. Appropriate levels of cover will ensure your investments achieve the desired outcomes no matter what life throws at you. In part 5 we discuss some of the myths surrounding property investments and the common mistakes made. It's not surprising to see why most Australians go it alone when trying to build property portfolios with 91% of all property investors only one or two investment properties, I think it's fair to say that there's enormous need for more education around property investment. Improvements here will help the entire economy. And in part six, we looked at the property decision matrix and the compromises that all investors must make. Every property exists somewhere on the spectrum between high growth and low yield and low growth and high yield. Meeting the net yield requirement for your first and subsequent properties must be the priority before chasing growth. But when it comes to growth, it may be more sensible to sacrifice on property type than to sacrifice on location. There's a number of other things to consider when looking at your property investment as a portfolio and not just a single acquisition. Firstly, diversification is important when building a property portfolio. And it's best to simply diversify by location rather than changing your property type and therefore your overall strategy. I would generally not recommend buying more than one property in any particular suburb. And whilst it may be practical to have your first few properties in your home city, I'd definitely be looking at alternative cities as your portfolio grows. Many property investors are staunchly property only. However, building a share portfolio with surplus income as you build your property portfolio allows you to participate in the growth of other markets as you're waiting for property equity to build. If you're a bullish around property, this can help you acquire your next property sooner. The ability to sell down shares quickly means that they can also act as a buffer in case you run into cash flow problems. Having access to an alternative asset class will smooth out the volatility associated with being invested in a single market. We know that residential property markets can often go sideways for long periods of time. So having exposure to other markets can help you with your overall growth strategy and income strategies. I would definitely recommend getting professional advice when it comes to putting together a share portfolio. Having a well-conceived funding plan is very important if you want to get serious about building a property portfolio. Some of the biggest mistakes I see in this area come from not structuring the debt correctly. If you're still paying off your home loan, it's important to ensure that as much of your debt sits against your investments and not against your home. This is because the debt on your investments is usually 100% tax deductible, whereas your personal debt is not. Mistakes in this area can result in paying tens of thousands of dollars in unnecessary tax. It's also important to understand how the various banks assess your borrowing capacity. There can be enormous differences from bank to bank in what they're prepared to lend, and what security they're prepared to accept. As your portfolio grows, the income or yield from your investment properties will also play a major role in calculating your serviceability. A good mortgage broker who has access to the majority of lenders is essential when buying multiple properties. Tax planning is an important part of building a property portfolio. Again, this may not be difficult when purchasing just one property, but it gets more complicated when acquiring multiple properties. A qualified financial planner will be able to ascertain whether you should purchase your properties in your name, in your partner's name, or in joint names, or whether the use of a discretionary trust or custodian trust is more appropriate. All of these things can have a large effect on how much tax you pay and therefore your holding costs. Finally, running cash flow projections will ensure that you can afford to hold on to your properties and not be forced to sell before they've made a profit. The key things here to remember are to calculate the net yield correctly, and utilize a PAYG tax variation if appropriate. Allow for changes in interest rates. Scenario testing with a 2% increase should be enough, but possibly more if this makes you feel more comfortable. Allow for changes in future income, if you're intending on having a family, moving to part-time work, having a career change, or starting a business. Allow for future personal capital expenditure requirements, like renovations or upgrading the family home, buying new cars, holidays, children's education, etc. Allow for insurance premiums to protect your family and ensure your investment plans. A good long-term financial plan will help with these things and keep you on track. Property investing, when done well, is not a simple process, which I'm sure you can appreciate by now. According to RP data, only about 10% of all Australians even own investment property, and only about 2.5% of the population own two or more properties. So I'd encourage you not to take advice from friends, family, or the armchair experts. Do your own research and or get help from qualified investment specialists. Here at Nexus Private Wealth Management, we can help you with as much or as little of the process as you would like. This could include creating strategy, running cash flows, setting up trusts, uh, investment research, due diligence, finding and acquiring properties, uh, implementing insurances, providing tax and SMSF advice, mortgage broking, estate planning, and even managing your entire portfolio. Having all the financial services under the one roof tends to save our clients a lot of time and money. From all of us here at Nexus, thank you so much for watching. Please consider sharing the series with your friends, family or colleagues and best of luck.